Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Again, that's Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And it reads, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, for the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of his disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. We're making our way through the prophecy of Jonah. We've come to Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Last week, we looked at chapter 2 with the theme of repentance. And this morning, we'll look at the theme of redemption. Redemption. As I was thinking on these things this week and meditating upon God's word and this text, It was raised in my mind the question of have you ever been pursued? Have you ever found yourself being pursued? Perhaps it was as innocent as a game of hide and seek or perhaps it was as serious as having law enforcement and the police on your trail. No need to raise your hand, John. Uh, <laughs> have you ever been Pursued. The sense of being pursued and, and chased can be an unsettling experience. Those who study such things tells us, tell us that some of the most common and distressing dreams that people have are what are known as chase dreams. It's a dream that you are being chased, that you are being pursued and pursued by something or someone that has the intention of doing you harm. They tell us that chase dreams are actually the, the source of many sleepless nights and a lot of anxiety in many people. Because the idea of being pursued can be an unsettling one. Beloved, 
It is not a dream, however, when God is in pursuit of you. When God decides that he is going to pursue you, beloved, it is not a dream. And in fact, I am convinced this morning that many of us can testify to the sense of being pursued and hounded by God. In fact, my own conversion story, in in part, is the story of finally realizing that God was in pursuit of me, and that he brought me to an end of myself, and showing me the vanity of my ways and the futility of my life and running from him. Admittedly, when God pursues you, it can also be a distressing experience until you realize this wonderful truth, that when God pursues you, he pursues you unto your good. When when God pursues us, he pursues us because he desires to do us good. When God pursued me, it wasn't to do me harm, but it was to do me good because his pursuit was unto my redemption. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what God does when he seeks us out. That's what God does when he gets in pursuit of a man or a woman. He does that to seek and to save them. Does that for our good. It's always been the case when God sought after Adam and Eve after their sin. They thought he was coming because to do them harm, but ultimately God sought them to do them good. When God sought after Noah, he came to Noah, not to harm Noah, but to save him. When he came to Abraham, he came not to do Abraham harm, but to save him. When Jesus goes and seeks after his disciples, when he seeks after Peter, he seeks after Peter for what purpose? To redeem him and to save him. When Jesus goes after Paul on the road to Damascus and he pursues him, he pursues Paul unto Paul's redemption. So it's the case with you this morning. God is pursuing you, has pursued you. It is unto your good. So is my testimony. So is the testimony of all who have been saved. God pursues us unto our redemption. So it was the case, beloved, with Jonah. God pursued Jonah unto his redemption and the redemption of Nineveh. Redemption. What is redemption? Well, the simplest definition that I can give you this morning is that redemption is freedom. Redemption is freedom. To be redeemed is to be set free by a power greater than the one that has held you captive. 
This is wonderfully illustrated for us in the Old Testament in the grandest picture the Old Testament gives us of God's redemption when God redeems the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 15, the Bible says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. It's freedom. It's being set free by a power that is greater than the power that holds you captive. And all of this points to our redemption in Christ because the Bible tells us that before Christ, we were slaves in sin. We were held captive by sin. We were in bondage to sin. And the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Christ, comes and redeems us, sets us free from bondage to sin. He redeems us from slavery to sin. And therefore, when God pursues us, beloved, he pursues us to set us free. And we need God to pursue us. We need God to pursue us. We want God to pursue us. Now, admittedly, we don't know this. Before I was married, I pursued my wife. I pursued Adrian. I went after Adrian, like some of you are doing with others. You are pursuing them. And I pursued Adrian unto marriage because I believed that I needed Adrian. So I pursued her because I thought she would be good for me. And she is. (laughs) And beloved, God doesn't pursue you Because he needs you. God pursues you because you need him. You want him to pursue you. You need him to pursue you. He doesn't pursue you because of it is good for him. He pursues you because it is going to be good for you. That's why he comes. That's why he comes. That's why he pursued Jonah. It was unto Jonah's redemption, which led to the redemption of Nineveh. And our text this morning takes us into this theme of redemption and gives us some important aspects to our understanding of what this glorious redemption is that God delights to bring to his people. It's not the fullest picture of redemption. There is so much more to the element of redemption that the Bible gives us, but there are some very important elements. In fact, three that this text teaches us about the glory of redemption. And the first thing that it teaches us is that redemption is a second chance. That's what redemption is. Redemption is a second chance. Notice what, how the text begins. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Beloved, this is evidence of, of God's amazing grace in the life of his people. 
for the second time does it not assume a first time? And yet the first time does not guarantee a second time. You do understand that the second time assumes there was a first time, but the first time does not guarantee a second time. And yet we are reminded here in this text that our God is a God of second chances. You know, we are a country of second chances, aren't we? Every time somebody gets into some some bit of hot water, somebody gets into a public issue, the first thing they want to say, well, you know, everybody deserves a second chance. You would think that was written into the Constitution. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and a second chance. Oh, beloved, that may be the way of the United States, but second chances are not guaranteed in the Bible. Lot's wife didn't get a second chance. Uzzah, when he put his hand upon that ark, did not get a second chance. Ananias, when he lied to Peter and the Holy Spirit, did not get a second chance. Second chances are not guaranteed, but they are the grace of God. First thing we should understand about these second chances is that they are undeserved because they are not guaranteed. You see what happens with Jonah here? Jonah gets a do-over, beloved. Amazing. Amazing. God doesn't dis- discard Jonah. He very well could. He could have just discarded Jonah and moved on to the next person to accomplish his will. But Jonah gets a do-over. Someone has said that being a grandparent is the ultimate do-over. How often do bad parents turn into good grandparents, Bob? (laughs) Beloved, being a grandparent isn't the ultimate do-over. The ultimate do-over is redemption. It is redemption. Do you understand that if you are here this morning and your sin is wearing on you and you are uniquely and acutely aware of the sin that you have committed, are committing, planning to commit, God is here this morning offering you a second chance. He is here not to condemn you, but to remind you and to give you another chance, a second chance. And you might say, well, I've already used up my second chance. Then he's going to give you a third chance. And you say, I've used up my third chance. Then he's going to give you a fourth chance. And I've used up my fourth and my fifth and my tenth. Then he's going to give you an eleventh chance. Because he is not simply the God of a second chance. He is the God of another chance. And another. And as long as you are able to hear his word, that the word of God comes to you this morning, that is God saying you have another chance. This is your do-over. Oh. Love it. When I was a 
young boy growing up in church, during the offering time, they would play the same song all the time. It would be, you can't beat God given, no matter how hard you try. I often thought about that. I see, that's not real good motivation for giving. I can't be God-given no matter how hard I try. Maybe I should just stop trying. But you know what? You know what the Bible says? That your sin can't outrace the grace of God no matter how hard you try. It can't. It can't. Your sin is not greater than the grace of God no matter how hard you try. It's Romans chapter 5 and, and verse 20. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. No matter how great the sin, the grace of God is greater. Here's, here's something, beloved, to consider this morning. Do you understand that your sin actually magnifies the grace of God. Because as your sin increases, guess what? The grace of God increases. Your sin magnifies the grace of God. Hard to get your mind around that. Hard for us to understand that. And that is because it is really hard for us to really grasp the power and the magnitude of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's something even greater to understand. Your sin may magnify the grace of God, but your repentance and turning from it magnifies it even more. It magnifies it even more. That's what Paul says Coming on the heels of Romans 5 and 20, he gets into chapter 6. And he says, I'll tell you what's even better. You turn from that sin, repent of it, and you will magnify the grace of God even more. Do you understand what he's done for you? Here's the this great do-over that God gives us. How often have I heard people say that I forgive, but I won't forget? Christians say that, beloved. Isn't it a good thing that God doesn't deal with us the way that we deal with each other? O. Palmer Robinson, speaking of Jonah here, says that Jonah says, that God says to Jonah, Jonah, let's go at it again. Jonah, let's start from the first. Let's forget the past and act as though it never happened. Let's forget the past this morning. And when you walk out of here, church, hear God saying, okay, let's forget last night didn't even happen. And let's see if you can't live in the grace of the God who gives another chance. Because you know what the second chance of God is 
A second chance is God not counting our sins against us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18, in Christ, God was reconciling us unto himself, not counting our sins against us. Wow. That's the God of a second chance. That's the grace of God that is undeserved. But you know, the word that comes to Jonah the second time is not only undeserved, you do understand that it is unchanged. It is unchanged. The word that came to Jonah the second time, do you understand it is identical to the word that came the first time? Chapter 3 and verse 2, the Bible says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. That's the exact same wording of chapter 1 and verse 1 when God came to Jonah the first time and says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. God's word, beloved, it just reminds us, doesn't it? God's word does not change. If Jonah was counting on the word of God being different the second time around, he was sorely mistaken. You know, often we find ourselves, don't we, when we are confronted by the word of God, not particularly enthused by what it says. And therefore, what we do, we go around and we seek a second opinion. We'll go around and find somebody who's going to tell us, well, you know, the word of God really doesn't say that. Well, you know, God has grown up and, you know, God has kind of matured and so has his word and now been brought into this age of enlightenment and, you know, the Bible really doesn't mean that. Beloved, let me say this about the word of God. If the word of God says the children are to obey their parents today. The word of God is going to say the children are to obey their parents tomorrow. If, if the word of God says that you ought not to marry an unbeliever today, the word of God is going to say that you ought not to marry an unbeliever tomorrow. If the word of God says that you are not to be cheating on your taxes today, the word of God is going to say don't cheat on your taxes tomorrow. If the word of God says salvation is by faith, through, by grace through faith in Christ alone today, then the word of God is going to say that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone tomorrow. Because Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 reminds us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's not the word of God that has changed. It's Jonah who's changed. God, God is the same. His word is the same. And it is not the word of God as it came a second time that changed. It was Jonah who changed. Last time when Jonah heard the word of the Lord, he fled. This time when he heard the word of the Lord, he followed. He followed after God. The difference is not in the word. The difference must come in you 
and come in me. And you do understand, beloved, in every church, in every church that is gathered in this world today, people are either changing the gospel or the gospel is changing people. One or the other is happening. Either the gospel is transforming lives or people are trying to figure out a way to transform and deform the gospel. It is not the word of God that needs to be changed, beloved. It's you. It is me. So let us not seek to change the word of God, but let us seek to be changed by it. Jonah was. And the whole city of Nineveh was as well. Changed by the word of God. For redemption came to Nineveh. It gives us our second point this morning. And redemption is not only a second chance, but redemption is head, is heart, and is hands. Redemption is head, heart, and hands. Christ comes to redeem. He redeems the whole person. When Jonah went to Nineveh, he preached, didn't he? Did what God commanded him to do. He preached the righteous judgment of God. He preached the necessity of repentance. And when the people of Nineveh heard the word of God proclaimed, the Bible says the people of Nineveh believed God. Verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. That's amazing. That's amazing. This seems really simple, beloved. It seems really simple. Oh, they believed God. It is the simplest thing that God asks of us, and yet it is the most difficult thing to do. All God ever asks of his people is to believe him. And yet the thing that we struggle with most is simply believing And here it is. When the word of the Lord came to the people of Nineveh, they believed God. And you see it in their head. You see it in their heart. And you see it in their hands. See it in their heart. Very, I mean, you see it in their head. Very simply, they believed God. They believed him. In other words, they changed their minds about God. And they changed their minds about themselves. They stopped believing in themselves and they started believing in God. That's a belong. It starts here, beloved, as the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, doesn't it? In verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. Because redemption, redemption begins there. It's renewing of the mind. It is stop believing in yourselves and the ways of the world. It is begin to, beginning to believe God and his word and his way. 
why the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 that we are to have this mind in ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. The idea here is to think like God thinks. Is to have your mind infused with the word of God so that you think like God thinks. You think about sin like God thinks about sin. You, you, you think about Christ like God thinks about Christ. You think about yourself as God thinks about you. That's what it means to believe God. God says you're a sinner and you believe, Lord, I am a sinner. But God says, yes, but you're saved and justified by faith. Yes, God, I'm saved and justified by faith. God says you are holy. Now walk in it. Yes, God, I am holy. I'm going to walk in that holiness that you have given to me. It is believing God. It's changing the mind to think like God thinks and to seek to understand like God understands me and the world around me. But it's not only head, beloved, it's heart too. It's heart as well. And, and they demonstrate this, they demonstrate they have affections and desires for God above all else. For it says that they believed God, and then what did they do? They fasted. They fasted. In fact, the king, when he gets word of it, he calls for no one or no thing to eat or drink. To go on this fast. Because what is fasting at its heart, beloved? Fasting is simply seeking to reorient our desires. It is reorienting our desires. There is nothing in this world that we desire more than food or drink. There's nothing. There's no greater compulsion in our being we have than for food or drink. In fact, many of you are desiring that this morning as I speak. You're desiring some food. You're thinking about it. Your stomachs are grumbling. You were hurried on the church and you didn't have time for breakfast. There is no greater desire in our physical being than desire for food and drink. And do you know, regardless of what you think right now, put in the right or wrong circumstances, you may try to eat and drink anything. Because the desire will be so great. What fasting does, beloved. Fasting is denying ourselves food and drink by saying there is nothing, God, I desire more than you. There is nothing that pulls at my affections more than you. Not that base desire of food and drink. I want you even more. Is the reorienting of our affections then, our heart's desires. 
Psalm 42, verses 1 through 2, familiar passage of Scripture, says, doesn't it? As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 73 and verse 25 through 26, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Not food, not water, not drink, not anything that I desire more than God. That's a heart that has been redeemed. That's a heart that is being, re- that is being reoriented toward God because that mind has been changed and that heart has been renewed. They're thinking the thoughts of God And their heart is welling up with a desire for God above all else. It's not just head and it's not just heart. But two, you see the hands. You see the hands. Because redeemed heads and redeemed hearts lead to redeemed hands. And this is how you know, beloved. This is how you know that what has gotten into the head has gotten down in the heart because you see it in the hands. It's manifested in the hands. And notice what the king says. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Don't just fast. Don't just say you believe, but show it by turning from your evil ways and the violence that is manifested in our land. That's how you know you've been redeemed. That just shows in the lives that we live. Those who think rightly about God and have right affections toward God seek to live their lives to the glory of God in righteousness holiness, and truth. True repentance, beloved, is not just what you say with your mouth. It really is what you do with your hands. It really is. The Bible reminds us, doesn't it, that faith without works is dead. James chapter 2 and verse 18 says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That which I say I believe, that which I confess that I desire must be manifested in the life that I live. This is how you know that true repentance has happened. It's not simply that they say they're sorry. It's not simply that they ask for forgiveness. It's not simply that they are contrite. It is then they get up from there and they begin to live a life contrary from the one they lived before. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. Let him who stole steal no more. Don't say you repented of being a thief and then you go back to stealing. Let him who stole steal no more. But now let him work with his hands 
That's going to be the evidence that what he said he believed with his mind, what he confessed as a desire of his heart, is demonstrated in the life that he or she now lives. And the Ninevites repented at the words of Jonah. You see that? They repented at the words of Jonah. But do you know what the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 11 and verse 32? That one greater than Jonah has appeared. That one greater than Jonah has appeared. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, it tells us that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace. My head, my head has been redeemed. My heart has been redeemed. My hands have been redeemed. Not by futile things, empty things, and by the precious blood of Christ. That's why we sing, redeemed. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by His infinite mercy. His child and forever. I am. My head, my heart, and my hands have been redeemed. That's what redemption is. It's whole. It's whole. Redemption is a second chance. Redemption is head and heart and hands. And redemption, beloved, is God relenting. This might be the most amazing truth of all. God relenting. Our text teaches us an amazing truth this morning. For it reminds us that when men and women repent, God relents. When men and women repent, God relents. Notice what the king commanded his people after he commanded his people to fast and he prayed because he says, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. No, the king knew what was at stake. He, he understood what was at stake. He knew the judgment of God was not simply Jonah selling wolf tickets. The judgment of God was real. Therefore, he throws himself and his nation upon the mercy of God. Hoping, believing, and if we repent and turn from our evil ways, who knows? God may be merciful. He doesn't have to be, but he just may be merciful. Turn from his fierce anger. And turn from the terror that he has said would come upon us. You know what verse 10 says? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. 
The King James Version says, God repented. God repented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. That's tough. That is an amazing passage of Scripture. Because I don't know if it raises for you, but it raises for me the question. Did God suddenly change his mind? Did God suddenly change his mind? Oh, they repented. Oh, my. What am I going to do now? The answer to that question, beloved, to the question, did God change his mind? The answer is yes and no. You thought it was going to be simple. The answer is yes and no. The answer is yes because that's what the text says. The text says that God changed his mind. The text says that God relented. The text says that God repented of the disaster that he had said would come upon them. God heard and he saw their cries for mercy and he relented from the destruction. Yes. Changed his mind in that sense. But he changed his mind in the sense but that this was his intended purpose from the very beginning. This is why God sent Jonah in the first place. If God did not intend for the Ninevites to repent, he would not have sent Jonah. But he sends Jonah with the message of the gospel because God intends for the Ninevites to repent. This is a necessary need for us to understand this. For Jesus says to his disciples, in John chapter 10 and verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this I must bring them in also. They will hear my voice. Here in Jonah is the message that God has intended from the very beginning that the Gentile nations would be brought into the glories of the kingdom of God. Does God change his mind about the Gentiles? No. And then again, yes. changed his mind as far as Jonah and the Ninevites are concerned. He changed his mind as far as we can read and understand. Because God desires for those whom he redeems to know the awesome and terrible judgment from which they have been redeemed. He wants you to know it. He wants you to know the terrors of hell. 
He wants you to know the terrors of an eternal existence apart from his grace and his mercy. He wants you to know the awful and terrible condition of your soul lest you repent. And then in your repentance, you get the understanding God changed his mind about your judgment. And then you understand what a sweet and awful place it is in the mercy of God. Did God change his mind? Yes. But then again, no, beloved. The Ninevites may have thought so, and Jonah may have thought so, and you and I may think so, but God knows that he didn't change his mind. God does not need to change his mind. He doesn't need to change his mind because he knows all things. God is not a man that he should lie. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 tells us, or the son of man that he should change his mind. But the Bible says, he doesn't need to change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? God knows what Jonah doesn't know. God knows what the Ninevites don't know. God knows what you and I don't know. And that is God knows not only the ends, but he knows the means by which the ends come. What does that mean? It simply means this, beloved, that he knew not only that the Ninevites would be redeemed, but he also knew that it would be through the preaching of Jonah and the preaching of their repentance that they would come to that redemption. He not only knows who's going to heaven this morning, but he knows the means through which each of us are going to get there. And he has gloriously ordained it all. And that's why he can say in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, I am the Lord God, I change not. God didn't change his mind, beloved, about sin. He didn't. He did not change his mind about sin. Whether it's Jonah's, Ninevites, or yours, or mine, he doesn't he won't, he can't change his mind about sin. All sin will be, all sin must be punished. Sin of the Ninevites, sin of Jonah, and your sin and mine. God didn't change his mind about sin. But you know what he did? His glorious truth, beloved, instead of punishing us for our sin, instead of punishing Jonah, instead of punishing the Ninevites, what he did, he punished his son. You know why the Ninevites were redeemed? Because God took their sin 
And he placed them upon Jesus. He didn't change his mind about sin. Sin's going to be punished. He just took their sin from them. And he placed it on Jesus. He hadn't changed his mind about your sin. He hadn't changed his mind about my sin. He just delights to take your sin and my sin and place it upon Jesus. Takes the punishment upon himself instead. Isaiah chapter 53 says he was wounded. For our transgression, he was crushed. For our iniquities, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are redeemed, restored, and forgiven. It's the only way, beloved. It's the only way. Don't think for a moment that God has changed his mind about sin. He hasn't. Thank God he hasn't. Thank God that he delights to do for us what he did for Jonah, what he did for the Ninevites, and that is take that sin and place it upon Jesus. Because he has placed it upon Jesus, because he was wounded for our transgressions, because he was bruised for our iniquities, because the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, because the stripes that were upon his back, we're redeemed. We're restored in right relationship with God. And we are forgiven. That's what happens, beloved, when sinners repent. God delights to relent. Absolutely an amazing truth to meditate on this morning. Let's pray.